0: Hi, this is Kutsianaki, and welcome to another episode of Down to the Struts, the podcast about disability, design, and intersectionality. Today, we'll listen in on my conversation with Erica Rickard. Erica directs a project at the Pew Charitable Trusts aimed at modernizing our nation's civil legal system. Worlds are colliding in this episode. Erica and I work together on this project at Pew. And I'm excited to bring you this conversation about our new report, How Courts Embrace Technology, Met the Pandemic Challenge, and Revolutionized Their Operations. The COVID-19 pandemic caused financial distress for millions of people, including disabled people, facing eviction, debt, and family crises. What's less known? is that many of these problems played out in state civil courts around the country. Meanwhile, courts raced to bring their operations online, trying to keep the wheels of justice turning in the midst of a public health emergency. Erica and I will talk about the potential promise of technology to increase participation in our civil legal system, especially for people without lawyers, and the barriers that can arise when courts do not center access for litigants to make the system more open, equitable, and efficient. Okay, let's get down to it. Thank you so much, Erica, for joining me on the podcast today. I'm really excited to have you.
1: Yeah, thank you very much for having me.
0: I was hoping you could start off by telling us a little bit about yourself, uh, you know, and what made you passionate about access to the civil court system?
1: Hi, I'm uh, Erica Rickard. I direct a project at Pew focused on modernizing our nation's civil legal system. So looking at how courts operate and how we can make them work better for the people that they're intended to serve. And uh, I work with you, Kansia, at the Pew Charitable Trusts. Um, I use uh, she, her, and hers pronouns. And a little bit about me, I'm a shorter white woman with short hair. Uh, I wear kind of masculine clothing. I'm usually wearing a tie when I'm at work. And uh, I talk really fast. And uh, I've been working in and around courts pretty much all of my adult life. And I've found there to be this real gap between the ideals that we have of the administration of justice and the reality as how it plays out in people's lived experience. And that gap is both really wide, but also hopefully really ripe for improvement. So my, my first job uh, out of college was in the court system in California. And I worked in a, in a self-help office where I would help people who were trying to uh, get guardianship of a child. So someone who was a grandparent or another family member trying to get legal rights over a child that they were taking care of. And the number of people who had to come back multiple times because they had the wrong paperwork or they filled out their name, uh, the last name first and not the first name first or something really minor uh, procedural deficiencies that would set them all the way back in their process uh, really showed me the way that courts can, to a fault, be kind of more uh, insular and focused on their own process rather than on how people are trying to use the court in order to navigate their legal needs.
0: Thanks so much, Erica, for sharing that story. And yes, this is definitely a moment of worlds colliding. I'm so honored to work with you and learn from you at Pew. And I'm really excited to share some of the findings of uh, a report that we worked on together um, that came out in December of 2021. But uh, before we get to that, I was hoping that you could share for us some examples of how disabled people might interact with a state civil court system.
1: So when we're talking about the civil court system, basically what we mean is everything that's not criminal. So a disabled person might interact with the court system for any number of reasons that aren't related to their disability. So that could include anything from uh, financial issues like a contract dispute or a debt collection case to family issues like divorce or guardianship or child support to housing issues like conditions of housing or evictions. Uh, We know that one in three U.S. households in a given year faces a civil legal issue that could wind up in court. There's also the issue of civil legal problems that are created by or exacerbated by systemic inability to respond to people's needs and people's disabilities. And I'm, I think you might actually have more research on that front, but there are certainly documented disparities between different demographic groups, including people with disabilities, based on the issues related to how our housing policy is structured or how our child welfare policy is structured.
0: Yes, that's very true. And and a couple of examples of that would include the fact that disabled people are far more likely than non-disabled people to lose custody of their children simply for the fact that they are disabled. Additionally, another example is you know, having to go to housing court because your housing is inaccessible or exacerbating your disability in some way. So those are some ways in which being disabled particularly places you in a position where you would interact
1: with the civil court system. And so far what we're talking about are issues that, a, that are legal problems that a person might have that could wind up in court, and that's thinking about Uh, disabled people interacting with the civil legal system to address their own legal needs. There's also, of course, people who are interacting with the civil legal system because they are professionals in that civil legal system. So disabled people work in courts, they're attorneys, they're interpreters. Um, So thinking about the ways that people interact with the court system aren't limited to people with disabilities having legal problems.
0: That's really true. And I myself, as a disabled lawyer, have have had that experience. I started my career um, when I was nineteen as an undergraduate intern working um, on housing issues at a legal aid office. And I worked as a, a paralegal after after college where I had to interact with the civil court system. And then later on in my legal career, I both worked in the immigration court system and also in family court. And I I must say there were so many aspects of those processes that as a blind person, I I found really difficult to navigate. Um, And with the stakes being quite high as I was trying to advocate on behalf of my clients on critical issues. Yeah, absolutely. So all of that being said, and we, we've, we've said a little bit about this, um, what, are, what are some of the identified barriers that disabled people can experience specifically in the state court system? Can you, can you give some examples?
1: Sure. And I think uh, some of the examples are really uh, physical, structural barriers, which really actually reminds me of a, a guest that you had, uh, I think it was uh, Stephanie DeLuca was talking about the uh, physical barriers, um, with the Capitol building and how having a historic building can, uh, uh, can mean both that there are insurmountable barriers, but there's also a kind of like cultural complacency about the need to, uh, m- reduce the barriers that already exist. And that's certainly true with courthouses, so many of which are, uh, very old and sometimes historic. Um, but the kinds of barriers that, uh, disabled people encounter in state courts are really, really numerous. And, uh, the, We've been following some of the work from the National Center for the Access to Justice at Fordham Law School, which has documented kind of a list of different policies or uh, processes that courts can adopt to reduce barriers. And those range from things like resources, uh, like uh, access to interpreters, to technology constraints around things like uh, screen readers being able to navigate court websites or court forms. Um, and what they've found is they've, they looked at all 50 states and the court systems in all 50 states and identified a set of policies and procedures and training tools and things for court systems to try to reduce barriers to disability access. And they created a scale uh, from zero to 100. And they found that of all the 50 states, 44 states received a mark of 50 or less out of 100 points. So we're seeing numerous barriers at the policy level, but when it comes to how that actually plays out for people, whether for court users, whether that's litigants or attorneys uh, navigating the court system, how those barriers play out and how many people are affected and how their lives are affected is a lot less known than it should be. Unfortunately, uh, courts largely do not track data about things as simple as uh, requests for individual accommodations and whether those requests were met, much less larger questions around demographic characteristics of people who are navigating civil courts and including uh, whether people have disabilities.
0: That's really illuminating. And I think it's it's particularly compelling and, and almost stark because one of the impor- important hallmarks of the Americans with Disabilities Act that was passed in 1990, which went beyond the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 that only applied to entities uh, receiving federal funding is that the ADA extended these protections, presumably into a public entity like a state court. But you know, as you described the NCAJ uh, uh, data and findings, state courts are still, you know, really struggling to, to meet the requirements of the ADA. And those are some really good examples that you gave. So I wanted to hone in specifically on one aspect you were talking about, which relates to our report. Um, which is access to technology in the court system. So we recently published a report that describes how courts sort of ramped up uh, the use of technology as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic and the shuttering of physical courthouses. And we found, you know, some, some interesting things and um, a lot of learnings about how courts need to think about technology as they modernize into the future. Could you describe some of the the findings of the report and and what recommendations we made?
1: I'd be happy to. One of the hallmarks of the court system across the country is that it relies on precedent and is rather slow to change. And we've seen courts are rather slow to change when it comes to the adoption of technology in particular. but, when, by, but in March of 2020, that all changed. Courts, as you mentioned, sh- courthouses had to be shuttered because of public health emergency declarations across the country. And courts had to grapple pretty quickly with how to make sure that the wheels of justice kept turning, even during the pandemic. And so what we found was that, by and large, almost all of the country experienced some form of virtual hearings. So court cases that had a hearing in a courtroom where two sides would argue their side of the story and the judge in the courtroom would make a decision, moved to virtual platforms like Zoom. But what we did was we went a step further and looked not just at the remote proceedings that were happening, but what leads up to that moment? What happens before a court hearing? uh, The paperwork that gets passed back and forth and the use of technology to facilitate kind of the interim steps of a court case. And what we found was that while before the pandemic, States had slowly adopted electronic filing of court of court paperwork, uh, and very even fewer of them had actually adopted uh, electronic filing for people without lawyers. Once at the start of March 2020, between March and August of 2020, uh, numerous courts started to adopt different forms of electronic filing and electronic processes for people to be able to navigate the court system. So. By March 2020, every state had some form of e-filing, but it was largely for attorneys. And there were 13 states in particular that had no mechanism for people to electronically file court documents before the pandemic started uh, if they did not have an attorney. During the pandemic, 10 more states adopted a tool or some kind of workaround for people without lawyers to be able to electronically submit paperwork during the pandemic. So that was helpful to see that courts can responsive to to the needs of the community, right? This was kind of an unprecedented time for all of us, but in particular for courts to be able to figure out how to take their decades or centuries old processes and dramatically transform them into something that was uh, all virtual or all remote. Um, But what we also did was we looked at how that plays out in areas of particular need for people that are facing uh, financial distress also as a result of the pandemic. So we looked at three different key issue areas that are some of the highest uh, volume type of court cases. So debt collection lawsuits, which are the single most common type of civil court case. Evictions, which are the second most common type of civil court case. And uh, child support, which is another uh, really high volume area of uh, court dockets. And what we found was that While electronic uh, electronic filing was taking place for attorneys and while zoom hearings or other virtual remote proceedings were taking place in those three different case types. People without lawyers actually weren't afforded the opportunity to electronically submit their paperwork. uh, In eight states when it came to debt collection lawsuits in nine states for eviction cases and in 10 states for child support so in each of those uh, different issue areas people without lawyers were left kind of struggling with how to actually meaningfully participate in a court case. And that has significant consequences for people when it comes to what the outcome of that case is going to be and how that case is going to affect them in the rest of their lives.
0: That's a really helpful sub up. And, and just to kind of add in a little bit of the sort of disability component to this discussion, you know, one of the things we, which was sort of beyond the the scope and the capacity of our research was understanding how accessible these electronic processes even were. Um, so more than half of court systems in the U.S. are decentralized, which means that decision-making, funding, And other aspects of court administration can vary from county to county, locality to locality. And so it was really difficult to figure out because of this diffuse nature of court administration, you know, what the the scope and scale fully was of, of issues of access. And uh, another thing to consider is, uh, as we learned from uh, Amy Hemray, um from Vanderbilt back in our first season, uh, when we talked about technology and access during the pandemic, kind of on a more broader scale, access is negotiated. And what could make the process accessible for one group of disabled people could create a barrier for another. So, for example, for some folks, maybe physical access um, to the court building was better, but for others, you know, working online really improved access. But, uh, for example, for a population like Let's just say blind folks, um, you know, working online or being able to uh, engage in court processes online could potentially be really helpful, but there could be a really big barrier if those online processes are not accessible so so it's a complex problem that we're, we're starting to sort of uncover, but it, it became clear to us through our research, I think, um, and Erica definitely weigh in, um, that there, there needs to be more study here and more uh, sort of deep analysis of, of where, where barriers arise for people with disabilities in the court system.
1: I absolutely agree. I think one of the limitations for us was that we were examining how courts were identifying their own new processes, and that was largely through the, uh, in the form of emergency orders that courts were putting out. And because courts are so decentralized, as you said, courts were putting out emergency orders at the state level and at the local level, whether that's city or county, specialized courts or other kinds of courts, sometimes uh, other branches of government were also putting out emergency orders that affected the courts. So uh, through our colleagues at uh, Wesleyan University, we looked at 10,000 different court orders that were issued during the pandemic and found that around uh, less than 2%, around 1.5% of those uh, court orders mentioned disability access at all. Um, and none of them included specific reference to actually ensuring that technology was uh, accessible during the pandemic. So that that may be a, a starker or more extreme than what actually was happening at the, at the local level. But because the local level is so uh, obtuse and so obscure and hard to unpack. It's really something that warrants further study.
0: And and also, I think at some point, um, getting the feedback of actual, you know, court users, um, you know, could be really informative in terms of understanding what real bar- whether they're disabled, non-disabled, or unrepresented, or um, have any other kind of characteristics of marginalization or oppression. I think understanding that perspective is really key. So that brings me to my next question, um, which you know we we talk a little bit about in our report, but. You know what? What in based on you know what we found um, in this experience of looking at the uh, court operations during the pandemic, what can courts do to work towards greater access
1: for disabled people? So, what courts did in kind of mid twenty twenty in response to the pandemic was uh, pretty heroic and pretty dramatic in their attempts to start something new for the first time, launch something across the board. But what they what that meant was that it was also very rushed and it did not include very much input or feedback from court user constituencies, including disabled people. And right now, as courts are thinking about what's going to happen as they move forward, which parts of the transition that they've made during the pandemic are going to revert back to the way it always was, which parts do they want to continue on into the future, now is a really important, pivotal opportunity to engage court users, particularly disabled court users, to do exactly what you said in in assessing what the barriers are right now, but also when they're exploring new forms of technology, actually seeking the input of court users before adopting a new technology, right? Getting somebody to actually try something and make sure that it works before you buy it for your whole state. That's that's both uh, an opportunity to assess what, what already ha- is on the ground and how it's working and how it can be improved, but also to kind of be more forward looking about what kind of future technology tools or other tools are going to be adopted and getting court user feedback at the outset and on an ongoing basis will really help inform the courts moving forward.
0: And what role can can research kind of play in this? I mean there's you mentioned sort of just the user feedback aspect. Are there other sort of areas of inquiry beyond just like the usability of the technology itself that need to be addressed?
1: Absolutely. There when we're looking at whether the court system has equitable processes for all court users, there are so many questions that have yet to be answered or yet to be kind of probed within how courts operate. And we really should expect that courts as a public institution are accessible, open, and transparent to the public and to researchers to be able to know what's actually happening inside of courthouse walls, whether they're physical or virtual, and what the outcomes are for people who are navigating them. So getting court user feedback on technology before it's deployed is one kind of smaller piece, but then being able to examine What are the major court cases? How are they uh, transpiring? What are, are there disparate outcomes that are being experienced by people based on demographic differences that have nothing to do with the merits of their court case? Those are questions that we don't yet have sufficient answers to because court data is so hard to come by.
0: And what role do you think that disability advocates can play in bringing courts closer to better access and stronger access for disabled people?
1: I think that by and large courts are kind of an underrecognized actor in people's lives for, for better, for whether they're uh, ameliorating or exacerbating inequalities or uh, financial, economic, uh, housing, or family uh, stability or, or harm. Um, and that, I think that that's particularly important for uh, advocates within a community, whether that's disability advocates or other advocates to, to recognize the role that the court system has in your community Um, And to be able to to be a meaningful participant, to to bring your voice to bear on the changes that are being made in the court system. So most states have an Access to Justice commission or a similar body that makes decisions about how to inform future changes that courts are making. And there's a seat at the table there. Seek out that seat at the table and be a voice for your community within the Access to Justice conversations that are happening in, in your community.
0: Thanks for that, Erica. And wh- why do you think access to justice is a part of disability justice, or should be?
1: That's a great question. I think the what really resonates with me about disability justice are the, kind of the two two concepts in particular. One is self determination, and the other is kind of this the expectation of difference. And I think those are two areas that uh, where there's a lot of overlap in the framing for access to justice. Um, and where courts need to move to. And that's thinking about something as simple as uh, the way that courts operate with kind of an expectation of uh, there there being uh, professional intermediaries that have a certain uh, ability, race, gender, and kind of breaking down those expectations will require processes and policies that actually embrace the differences in different court users and set new expectations for what Court processes, court forms, court hearings uh, that can actually be accessed in a way for people to be able to meaningfully participate regardless of ability.
0: Great. Well... Erica, this has been a pleasure. Uh, I, I, I had fun having the worlds collide and <laughs> I I'm, I'm so grateful to have had the opportunity to work on this report and we'll share a link to it in our show notes. And um, I, I hope that disability advocates who are listening to this podcast will start to think about the court as an institution that um, needs their action. And um, I I hope that we can all work together to, to make justice real for disabled people in state civil courts. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Down to the Struts. This podcast would not be possible without the energy and creativity of our audio producer, Alana Nevins, and our social media manager, Avery Annapol. If you'd like to become a patron and support the awesome team that brings this podcast to life, you can visit www.patreon.com slash down to the struts. You can also join our Facebook group, Down to the Struts podcast, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Down to the Struts. Finally, remember to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you love to listen. Or you can do none of that and simply enjoy the conversations that you find here. Stay tuned for episode five, coming to your feeds on February 1st. We'll hear from author, essayist, and journalist Robert Kingit about being a blind, gay author and the need for more intersectional voices in literary fiction. I can't wait to be with you again very soon so we can get back down to it.